What's up, everybody? On this episode of The Boss's Key Party, we are joined by Tom Monteroso, a.k.a. T-Bird. T-Bird is an absolute giant in the snowboard media realm. He spent 13 years working at Snowboard Magazine, where he helped them tell some of snowboarding's most iconic stories. In our discussion, T-Bird explains how his whole career, he's always been trying to expand his range. From writing, to photography, to announcing some of snowboarding's biggest events, to really whatever other form of media content he could produce. All this came to a head a few years ago when he was approached to write and direct both a book and a documentary to tell the 30-year history of ride snowboards. The movie, Rough Around the Edges, 30 Years of Ride Snowboards, premiered in Seattle this fall and will be released on YouTube in the coming months. T-Bird walks us through the process of creating the doc, telling the story of the ups and downs of a snowboard brand that's been through so much over the last three decades. In addition to myself, we have two special TSMers drop in for this conversation, Neil, our snowboard buyer, who is actually in Seattle for the world premiere of Rough Around the Edges, and Devin, our outdoor buyer, whose brother Tanner has spent the last seven years at Ride Snowboards and is heavily featured in the documentary. Enjoy the show. Holla. Is what it is, man. Is what it is, man. It is what it is, man. It is what it is, man. It's cheap too. Duskymaster.com. So Oregon for for two years. So are you are you uh are you an Oregon Trailblazer, dude, or or I mean, being from New Hampshire, are you Celtics fan? I am a Celtics fan. I'm Hell a Celtics yeah. fan. Right. Uh, yeah, I bleed green through and through. All all Boston related teams. Even though I'm from New Hampshire, I'm down. Patriots, Celtics, Bruins, oh, nice. Red Sox. All right, um, cool. I have I've I've gotten a couple photo gigs. I've been working with the Trailblazers team photographer. Uh, this guy Bruce out here and got to shoot a couple games. Got to shoot media day. Um, so I'm a Trailblazers fan as well. You know, yeah. I'm down for the Blazers, but yeah. I, I was I was looking at your Instagram. I was looking at your Instagram today because uh, you know you're you're going to be on the podcast and I, and I I saw that photo of of you, you took a took one of of you know the game and I was like dude you better not be a fucking Trailblazers <laughs> from Boston <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad that you're nah. not I'm glad that you're not because we're, yeah. the, the boys are buzzing dude the Celtics look good man sorry oh baby. yeah they're deadly they are dangerous this year they're going to be good it's it's awesome I, I can't stop I can't stop watching. Um, to be honest with you, I actually can't yeah. stop watching the World Cup either. I'm like glued to the TV. I'm addicted. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't yeah. get enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, dude. Well, thanks for being here, man. Like, really appreciate you doing this. This is awesome. Um, I know Neil was just out there um, at, at at your premiere, which we'll get to in a second. But first of all, you guys are from the same town. I don't know if you guys talked about dude, that. I I just discovered this recently listening. Back to your bombhole episode. We're both from Bedford. No way. What street? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, give me the street. <laughs> What's that? What street? Give me the street. Uh, yes. Wh- where did you live? I, gr- I grew up on Christmas Tree Circle, so it's okay. like heading heading towards Amherst on 101. You take a left on Jenkins Road, and then it's one of those little streets back in there. Such a small yeah. world. So funny. I mean, yeah, so crazy. That's wild, man. You, you yeah. guys, you guys are the pri- Every- you guys are the pride of Bedford. <laughs> you two and Adam. Yeah, that's, yeah, the, that's, that's the podium. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Put put me right up there with the Sandman. I guess I'll take it. Which is awesome. Um, so yeah, so we don't have we won't go too too much. I guess into into the background stuff because there's a lot of fun other things that we want to talk about, which is why you're here. But we should at least say, you know, you are a New England guy um, from Bedford, New Hampshire. And I'm, you know, you, you kind of 
grew up kind of shredding where like Loon and Waterville area? Yeah, so I grew up uh, riding a really small mountain that I, I honestly don't know if it's still there. It's in Manchester, New Hampshire proper. It's called McIntyre Ski mm-hmm. Area. That's <clears throat> the first place I ever snowboarded. Uh, and then I kind of graduated to Pat's Peak in Henniker, got a job as a snowboard instructor there when I was in high school. And then I went to Plymouth State University. And that's where we really fell into like the kind of Waterville and Loon world. Uh, and that was like a life-changing moment for me, even though knowing what I know now, it's not that big of a mountain at the time. It was just like blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I yeah. get, went to college, you know, 15, 20 miles from that. Yeah. I, I grew up, um, kind of skiing on and off at this place called Mount Tom in Western Massachusetts. I don't know if you remember Mount Tom, but it's similar. So I, I went to UMass Lowell and then with my college buddies and now one of my, my business partner, George, like we went to Loon that was my first time when I was in college. And I, I remember thinking the exact same thing that you said. I was like, holy shit, like this is fucking huge. Like this is insane. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously like, it, it's still a great place, but there's a lot of bigger ski resorts. But at the time as like a 19 year old. It feels I, like that's where everyone is. Yeah, like, oh, I was like, this is, this is the biggest resort yeah. I've ever, this is incredible. Um, which, which well, is, and that was, that, that was like the biggest impact it left on me because not only was I exposed to, to better terrain parks and like larger terrain and, I mean, like gondola doors shutting for the yeah. first time. I was like, what yeah. is yeah. going on? <laughs> this is sick. Um, it exposed me to kind of like the what was going, the coolest stuff that was happening on the East Coast. You know, you you meet Shane Flood, Preston Strout, Brian Barb, uh, Luke Matheson, like Maddie Ryan was up there lapping. Then you kind of see like Pat Moore and Scotty Lego and you're like, well, these these homies are like onto something. Like I'm going to kind of like follow them and see what they're doing. And that's how I kind of unlocked the level of being like, all right, I want to work in the snowboard industry. Like somehow I pretty much, as soon as I met Pat as I think I was 22 or 23, <clears throat> cause I got a job coaching at Waterville Academy. I met Pat Moore and Chaz Goldemond and saw them snowboard at 13, 14, 15. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to be a pro. Like yeah. it's pretty obvious that I don't have what it takes to do that. <laughs> So I started scheming, like, all right, what's my next move? How can I, like, stay in this? And it just kind of all worked out. That's awesome. Were you coaching when you were still at Plymouth, or was this after Plymouth? uh, No, I I only coached at Waterville Academy when I was at Plymouth. We were, like, the weekend coaches. Um, (laughs) Some coaches we were, man. We (laughs) – we. Dude, we would show up there so banged up from the night before, and we have like a bunch of twelve-year-olds. They're like, "Hey, T-Bird, what do you want to do?" I'm like, "I want to go sleep, man." Like, my God, you guys <laughs> I haven't have been too to bed yet, energy. dude. I've been up all night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it was incredible. That was like another watershed moment. Is like meeting Bill Enos and him having the faith in you know myself and my buddy Eamon to like. We weren't really coaching the kids. We were just riding with them. They were already so good. I mean, you, like. Pat Moore, Chaz Goldemond, Ian Thorley, Tim Humphreys, uh, Tanner McCarty. Like these kids didn't need coaching. They just needed someone that was down to like lap with them and ride all day. And that's what we did. Well, Tanner did come home one day and he uh, he was probably like 11 or 12 and he pulled me aside and he's like, what does a hangover look like? <laughs> <laughs> and I was a little bit, I wasn't like the most experienced, but I was like, well, you know, you might be a little grumpy. It, it looks sick. like your snowboard coach. Yeah. And, and then he goes, he goes, I yeah. think, I think T-Bird was hungover. I was like, yeah, probably yeah. was. <laughs> yeah. Many times I was, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that was just, that was such a cool experience. And, it, and surprisingly it was like really good money too. Like we got paid really well to do that two or three days a week. And, 
So it was just an awesome opportunity. And again, just drove home the fact that I was like, oh, there's other ways to make snowboarding your living without being a professional snowboarder. Yeah. And, and Luna is a, an awesome place because I, I joke here with everyone that, that snowboards and I, I'm just, you know, kind of being a dick about it. But it, it is it is kind of funny because I on the East Coast, I call Loon snowboarding's last stand because because at Loon, like when you go to Loon specifically, everyone is snowboarding, like everyone is snowboarding at Loon. And you're like, wow, there's so many snowboarders yeah. here. And then you go to like a, a Vermont resort and you're like, oh, they're all at Loon. There's no one really snowboarding. I mean, yeah, there are snowboarders, but you know what I mean? Like there's a good mix of skiers and snowboarders at a lot of other places, but then you go to Loon, it's like so heavily snowboarding. It's even yeah. still that it, it's, it sticks out. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like the big bear of the East. You know what I mean? Like the percentage is like 80, 20 rather than like 50, 50. Right. <laughs> um, but when I first started kind of exploring those mountains, it was kind of flipped like Waterville was like the snowboard heavy place. Like you went to Waterville and then you'd go to Loon to take longer laps. Um, and then all of that kind of changed right around the time. Uh, you want to know how old I am. My roommate uh, was this guy, Brian Norton. And I remember him coming home being like, dude, I got a job like building the park at Loon. Like he had just learned how to drive snowcats. And now he's the president of Loon Mountain. That's how old I am. <laughs> Yeah, dude, that's he's awesome. the actual like he's like the actual general manager. So it's funny, I, like his job on the like the call sign on the radio was park two. And so, so that meant he was like the second dude in charge of the park. And again, one day he comes home and he's like, I'm park one, baby. And we're like, whatever, park two. Still to this day, he's in my phone as park two. I That's only awesome. refer to him as park two. But he's, yeah, he's like the general manager or the president or something. It's pretty wild. Dude, that is That's really cool. wild. That's really cool. Yeah. Dude, I got this yeah, sick so a job. Lot of us, a lot of us just kind of came up like at the right time. Like I have a lot of friends from Plymouth that were, that went right into the snowboard industry in various genres and are still there. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did such a good job. Um, I mean, because when I was in college, again, I told that story when I first went there, but that was the first time that I, I actually saw like a real like terrain park, like a real one. And they did so mm -hmm. such a good job of building that out. I mean, that was the first half pipe I ever went into, you know, like, and it was a real half pipe. It, it was huge, yeah. and um, that that was that was obviously awesome because I knew everywhere in New England, I feel like at that time specifically, like there wasn't anything else like that available, and they just crushed it. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible, and they used to have those old Stimulon Big Air Jump contests where like they were like Super Park before Super Park. It was like a forty-five foot cheese wedge and like eighty feet of flat and just the steepest landing you've ever seen. It's crazy, and all the local pros would come through, you know, and like you'd get you would get like exposed to that, yeah. which was really cool. Like you were like, oh, there's there's like another level to this. And I feel like that's how my career has been, you know, from writing to photography to producing. Like I'm always finding other levels and avenues to try to explore. And I always kind of say like, I'm going to stay in it until I'm not allowed to be in it anymore. Or like till they're sick of me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just that that park was great. I mean, just even thinking of like that mat that massive wall ride. That was like the first. Yeah. That was like the first massive feature that I ever saw, and it's I think it's still there. But at the time, it was so big. You're like, people actually go up that thing. <laughs> like, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. 
So, and then you see someone who like knows how to hit a feature like that, and yeah. you're like, oh, that's how it's meant to be hit. Like that's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, like standing next yeah. to it, and there's maybe like they're they kind of just building the snow up to it or whatever. I mean, the first time I saw it, I think the first time I saw it, it was super early in that, the season that year, and so there wasn't even like enough snow, kind of in and around it. And I'm like, there's no way that someone's gonna go up that thing, you know? Because like it wasn't yeah. even built up yet. And then you literally, to your point, Tom, it's like you go back and you watch kids hit it, and you're like, oh. Yeah, I, that's I'm, how it's done. That's how you do. Like, yeah. I suck. They're that's <laughs> sick. You know, that's incredible. So that's cool. Yeah. Um. So yeah. All right. Then you ventured west, right? Then you somehow ended up in Lake Tahoe. How did that all go down? Uh, I mean, we were just watching snowboard movies, and at that point in time, it was it was Mac Dog and Standard and Robot Food. That those were like our three big influences, and it must have been a couple good winners in Tahoe because there was so much Tahoe footage. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of were like, you know, got done with college and we're like, what do we want to do? Well, we want to go snowboard. And it, like my buddies were like, where should we go? And we were just kind of like, I don't know, Tahoe. And we literally just drove out to Tahoe. Um, I don't think we even, ha I don't remember if we had like an, a, a condo, like or apartment lined up. Um, but yeah, we all had a couple hundred bucks in our bank account drove cross country, found a spot in Tahoe and just did a full winter in Tahoe. I got laid off from my job like three separate times nice. for calling in sick every time it snowed. Nice. Yeah, that was pretty good. That's good. <laughs> um, and my first job there actually uh, was with the property management company that uh, managed the house that we lived in. I went to drop off the rent check and the guy's like, oh, what do you do for work? And I was like, actually nothing are you hiring and he's like yeah i could use another property manager <laughs> hired me on the spot and uh yeah, this is actually the last me. one of these checks you're gonna get unless you hire me so <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much um so we did that for a winter and then kind of ran out of money and i moved back to new hampshire and i was painting houses didn't really have a plan and then i just got like the phone call that changed my life uh one of my buddies that i went to Plymouth with um, was this kid named Ben Fee and he was working at Snowboarder Magazine and when I was living in Tahoe I'd get every issue and be like oh look for Ben's name because he was just writing everything in the magazine and so he just kind of called me and he's like hey what's your plan and I was like oh, I'm probably gonna save up enough money go back to Tahoe haven't really figured it out and uh, yeah he was like why don't you just come out and work at the magazine and I was like which magazine he's like Snowboarder and I'm like how's that gonna work he's like dude just fly out here okay literally sold everything I owned, uh, packed a board bag and just bought a one-way ticket to San Diego. My mom's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just flying to San Diego. And I got, I lived with Ben. He had like a little eight by 10 uh, porch, but it's in Southern California. So the weather's nice pretty much all the time. Yeah. And I just got like a Walmart tent for like 50 bucks and lived in it for eight months on wow. his back porch. Wow. Yeah. And just started, I just started going into the office with, with Ben. And, um, and that's where I met Pat Bridges. He didn't know I was coming. That was the surprise of a lifetime. Like my first day in the office, he's like, who are you? I was like, oh, Hey, I'm T-Bird. And he's like, what, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, Ben said I could like come out and work. And he's like, are you in college? I'm like, no, I graduated. And he, he just looks at me and he's like, fuck, we got to pay you. And just walked away. <laughs> and I was like, so you're saying I'm hired and just, that's like, so I can stay I as can I, stay? yeah. So as I remember it, that's just like kind of how it worked. And so I got a job at uh, another job at Jack's garage, which is like the big snowboard skate shop out there, uh, right on Huntington pier. 
and um yeah i would work six nights a week at jack's garage five days a week in the office and then get sundays off to go surf and hang and it kind of allowed me to like save some money and once uh once i was full time with the magazine i just walked in i was like hey i can't work here anymore and they're like cool man later and i just kind of bailed never went back in (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's pretty cool though i mean you got a a little i mean you got a little taste of the of the retail side of things for for a little bit there which is always always good experience yeah it was sweet because i'd never worked retail before i'd never worked in a shop um, again, it was Ben Fee knew the owner of Jack's Garage. He was this dude named Akram. Um, and he used to sponsor like Danny Davis, uh, Travis Rice, like all the grenade crew, Lane Kanak, all those guys. So Akram was like, dude, you're working at Snowboarder? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And he's like, anytime you need to go on a trip, just get the time off. I'll give you the time off. And he wasn't the manager. His parents literally owned the place. So I kind of had a bit of an advantage because he was a big fan of snowboarding. And he's like, yo, this isn't your end goal. Like, that's your end goal. So do whatever you need to do to get that job. And anytime you're available to work here, just let me know. Dude, that's That's awesome. That's pretty sick. Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty crazy. That couldn't have worked out any better for you. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Um, And so, yeah, from, from then on, Ben ended up quitting. Uh, Joe Prebich, who was the online editor, ended up moving over to Red Bull and becoming Sean White's manager. And then it was just me and Bridges for a super long time. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, 13-ish years, something like that, wasn't it? I mean, that, that's a good run, Yeah, 2000, man. 2006 to 2019. Yeah, it was a long time. That is a long time. And so, yeah. so many changes of, you know, with the landscape of media for through that time, too. I mean, yeah. big changes. I mean, so, you know, you were there kind of when print was really strong towards 2018-19 where it wasn't. I mean, what was that kind of like? I mean, when we first started, we were making 14 issues a year. And I think the smallest book that we made, or we used to call them books, magazine, we made was like 380 pages. That was the smallest. The biggest was like over 500 pages. Um, And it was crazy. That That was a time where I remember like, the magazine was allowed to set the rules for the advertisers before it flipped, right? And mm-hmm. it was like, you want to advertise with Snowboarder, you have to spend this much money. If you're not down, we'll move on to the next person who's knocking on our door. I mean, it was a pretty wild time. There's a lot of money in snowboarding. Mm-hmm. And this is back when, you know, a big name pro snowboarder could be making upwards of seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 a year. Um, and then kind of where I saw a drastic shift, uh, it was right before the internet got really big. I mean, I remember being in meetings where people are like, oh, we need to work on our website. And you'd hear like people laughing. They'd be like, no, we don't. You know, I might've been, I might've been one of the ones laughing. Like it was such an afterthought, but then it was the 2008 housing market collapse that really put like a big dent in the snowboard industry because, I feel like what it did was it took a lot of expendable income away from people. And that's ultimately what skiing and snowboarding is. It's for largely for people that have a fair amount of expendable income. And once that went away, we were kind of like, oof, this is this is looking pretty, pretty bad. And then the Internet, uh, the advent of the Internet really shook things up because it was just feeding the machine. That's when like the the constant flow of content would never cease like once that faucet was turned on yeah it can't be turned off once you open that pandora's box it's open Mm -hmm. and 
you know, now it is what it is, and I feel like we've kind of adapted to it, but I, I do feel like it's, you know, been a little bit of a decline in snowboard media landscape. Like, it's kind of just given people constant content all the time. And how has that affected content? That's up for, like, anyone who watches snowboard content or any content at all to to interpret. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it really changed everything drastically, like super, super fast. It happened really quick. It, it seems like it ha- happened overnight. I, I mean, it, like to go from three to five hundred page, you know, issues to to none in in like less than a decade. Like that, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, and again, like we get it all the time. Every, we always talk about it internally, but like you know, there's just there's so much that you look at on your phone, and so it's like, I think, well, I would hope anyways that it's slowly m- maybe. Tr- kind of tr- trending back the other way because when you do get something now in paper that someone put a lot of time and effort into creating versus like the stuff that's like done digitally, it, everyone can do it from you. Anyone can produce a video on their phone. And so when you get this thing right. now, that's like an actual book. It almost feels like it, it, it feels like special. It's kind of wild. There's like a, like a newfound appreciation for yeah. it. Yeah. For some reason it's like, wow, like you don't see this often anymore. No, and, and I know. It, it like hits a little harder. It, it definitely does. Right. And it's like, what do they say? Everything's cyclical, right? So maybe now this is the time where like, you know, the Instagrams and the websites and all this stuff is it's been around for so long that we can finally come back to that point in time where when you hold something tangible, it, it has a little bit more value to it, you know, but it's, it's also interesting because, you know, snowboarding, snowboarder went away, Transworld snowboarding kind of went away. Bridges started Slush, which is really cool. It's like an independent uh, magazine that's paid for by subscribers. Uh, Snowboard Magazine came back. Jeff Baker brought that back. And then you have John Stark and Ian Bowl who are doing the Torment thing. Um, And it seems a little more intimate now, like a little bit more thought is going into it. And the people who run those magazines can go back to the place where they can forge alliances with the advertisers that kind of speak to their ethos. They can they can have they can partner up with advertisers who they really like and back and get behind um, and say no to the other ones. Because there was a point in time in Snowboarder where it was like, oh, Levi's? Yeah, come on in. Yeah. Or like Dollar Tree General Stores? Yeah, get the <laughs> fuck in here. And I, we're just sitting there being like, yo, what is going on right now? Like, yeah. this is crazy. The stuff that's popping up on the site, like the, the little web banners. And now we can... It feels like we're we're starting to get back to the place where we can be a little bit more curated with it. That's good. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Again, like I, I just view it as as like a back like a photography thing, you know, because like I, I looked at your website, you know, when we were when we were kind of preparing for this, and I'm like, you some of your photos are incredible, you know, and they're they're so like curated onto what you're trying to capture in that particular frame, and like that means yeah. so like and seeing that say like on a piece of paper in a mat as an ad or or whatever article you're writing it feels so much more like in depth and and so much more like kind of calculated versus like we just scroll through our phones and all of our fees are curated to us and it's just like oh there's a someone doing a a double core oh there's someone jumping off a cliff and they're all really cool but like you just they're not for whatever reason now you're so desensitized to it that like you don't even watch it or look at it and then you look at actual photos that you took that are really thought out and you're like damn like that is that's fucking sick and again, like, I just feel like to your point, Tom, like it's kind of, I think coming back a little bit because 
those kind of photos mean so much more now because there's so much crap like in front of your face all the time. Yeah. And as a photographer, seeing something in print holds like such a different special place in your heart. Not not saying I'm not down with the phone. Like, I don't want to sound like an old head. Like, I understand the need for oh, a brand to you to utilize you know, computers and cell phones to speak to their customers. I completely get it. Um, but as a photographer, you know, seeing like your photo this big and you hit it with a double tap and keep going yeah. is way different than like opening a magazine and seeing a full spread or a full page. You're just like, this is, this is awesome. This is like why I shoot photos. You yeah. Know? Um, the, the, and the funny thing for me is like, I became a photographer almost by accident. And it's become like a much larger part of my repertoire than anything I've ever done. Um, and it was my buddy. My buddy was like leaving that kid, Ben, he's yeah. moving out of his apartment and he had like this broken old camera that someone had left at his house. And he's like, do you want this? I was like, yeah, sure. So I got a fix, bought a lens for it and like just started shooting. I like, I hadn't really shot photos before 2006. Yeah. I, I'm, gl um, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. Cause I was going to ask you how you got into it because obviously you, you know, you've been doing it with ride for a while and you have all this great photography kind of out there. And it seems like something to get into something like that, you kind of needs like a random act of the universe and which is what you just described. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It was literally, Ben was cleaning out his closet and was like, oh, I don't want this. Do you want it? And sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I brought it to a camera shop and got it fixed. And uh, you know, I had a revelation a long time ago. I'm a writer by trade. Um, my, my degree at Plymouth was English major with a minor in writing. Um, and I still do love to write. I still do a lot of writing in my freelance, uh, jobs. Um, but photography, I could see the tide shifting, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, if I just stay as a writer, eventually there's not going to be a place for me. And I mean, look where we are now, right? Like you're not, people aren't hiring writers to write Instagram captions. And so I was like, yeah, this photo thing can kind of work out. So I brought the camera around with me and I just started, uh, shooting photos, but I had like a fast track to success. Like for example, I would go to super park and instead of shooting a photo and, you know, looking at it and being like, ah, oh, it doesn't look right. I would just turn and ask Espen Listad or Oli Gagnon or Aaron Dodds or Eastone be like, yo, what's wrong with this? And they would just tell me what I did wrong and what I need to do right the next time. So I didn't, I didn't have to learn for myself because I was constantly surrounded by these really iconic photographers. Um, and so I, I feel like I learned really quickly. Like I think the first season I shot photos, I got a full page uh, photo in Snowboarder. That's sick. Um, and it was a photo of Mason Aguirre uh, getting like, chased by his dog down a hill or something like that and i just kind of put my camera up and snapped a few photos and our photo editor at the time liked it and ran it and i was like oh this is like a drug yeah you know like this <laughs> yeah. is crazy That's you know awesome. shooting a good photo and i just kind of became addicted to it and thankfully i did because i i truly feel like if i had just remained a writer at a certain point in time i would have probably got laid off from snowboarder or they wouldn't have seen a need for me and i probably just would have got just a normal you know job doing whatever I don't really know what I'd be doing yeah. it's scary to think about dude there's there's one photo in particular that it came that I saw on your, I think it was on your website and it, it was a it was a photo and it doesn't it's kind of weird because it doesn't feel like a photo because there's two cameras in the photo there's someone's jumping I think it's like in in Nova Scotia maybe and someone's kind of jumping onto a rail like on an urban feature and there's somebody <laughs> oh. 
there's somebody there's somebody literally taking a photo of it like in a bathrobe like with cigarettes everywhere and like orange juice and then there's another fucking sick ass camera that's like videoing it and the photo is of like this what's happening and it was i was like looking at it i'm like is this a what am i looking at it was (laughs) it's such a good shot dude like like thanks that 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 was really cool It, it was like a fucking mind f looking at that thing yeah, that was a crazy one. That was uh, we had we had actually lost our minds, like legit. We're going absolutely clini- clinically insane. Uh, we went to St. John, Nova Scotia, with Jed Anderson and uh, and Reed Smith, and we were shooting this video for Jed, and um, this was for Ride Snowboards. And about halfway through the trip, we start hearing about the hundred year storm, this like bomb cyclone that's going to hit like never before. And we're like, should we get out of here early? And then everyone's like, no, it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. Jed, being smarter than us, is like, yo, I'm flying out tomorrow night. And we're like, all right, dude, later. Uh, So Jed flies out. Sure enough, the next morning we wake up and it had literally created like a hurricane of snow. Mm. And the the drifts, like the snow drifts, because it's right on the water. And so there's like 90, 120 mile an hour winds. They had created 10 foot snow drifts. It was so crazy that we could not open our front door in the morning. We had to like call the Burton crew to walk over in a hurricane of snow and dig us out. Uh, So long story short, we got stuck there for nine extra days or something like that. Like every flight canceled. It was the craziest situation of all time. The the, um, power box on the side of our house exploded in our Airbnb. And so we packed up our bags and we trudged like a mile to the nearest hotel that had power. And we stayed in that hotel. I, I remember I called Tanner, uh, Devin's brother, who was um, the marketing guy at Ride. And I was like, yo, we're done. Like, we can't go anywhere. And he's like, I got you. Here's a photo of my credit card. Go nuts. Do whatever you have to do. Yeah. Because we were going to be stuck there for like 12 extra days or something like that. And so we just holed up in the hotel and... Um, that was the last spot we hit and it was right outside of our hotel window because after that someone saw Reed doing it and they were like, Hey, if he goes to the hospital, he can't get in. If he breaks his leg, he's just going to have to deal with it because the hospitals are shut down now. And so we were like, all right, we're done. We're (laughs) wrapped. Yeah. We're, it's a shoot. And then we just hung out in the hotel for like five extra days. Wow. Yeah. You guys must've felt like you're going insane. Yeah, we were going nuts. It was it, it was COVID lockdown before COVID lockdown. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you got a, you got an early taste of it in uh, Nova Scotia. But hey, well, I mean, the, the photo came out incredible. I mean, that's one of the coolest ones photos I've, I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it was pretty. I rad. appreciate that. Um, so h- how did you transition from basically the snowboard snowboard mag to announcing all these these contests and these events? Like, did was there some overlap, or 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 was it like, hey, I'm done here, I'm starting here? I mean, there must have been some some kind of overlap. Yeah, that was kind of another one, like right place, right time, but also like another little like tentacle of the octopus that I felt like I kind of needed to go down like a different road so I could like diversify myself in the snowboard space. Um, So Pat Bridges, who was my boss at the time, the editor of Snowboarder, uh, we went back east for the US Open. And I want to say it was like the first time they had ever done a webcast. I think it was 2007 or 2008. Um, back when like there was no camera on you, you're just holding a microphone, like watching a little screen and just calling the action. And, uh, maybe one of the announcers got sick, but there was like an opening 
And Pat was like, oh, get T-Bird in there. And so, you know, the next morning he's like, hey, come to the booth. We need you to announce. And I just went in there totally blind. Come on. Uh, And yeah, yeah, (laughs) just started talking. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, And the next year they called me back. And the year after that they called me back. And then I just kind of like honed that craft a little bit more and and chameleoned myself into that world a little bit i guess you know i would watch i watch a lot of mainstream sports and drives my wife nuts because she's like sports again but it's like i'm not just watching it for the sports i'm listening to the announcers i'm seeing like how they transition i'm kind of listening to who's the host and who's the Mm play-by-play color guy and i just have always made little notes in my head about stuff like that that's that, yeah. that's really and cool so, because it, it's definitely not an easy thing. I mean, and for for someone just to go in like go in blind and be like, yeah, fuck it, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna give this thing a go. <laughs> One day notice. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> All right, I'm here. I mean, that's really cool. Well, it it was a it, I feel like I had an easy entry into it because again, it was like it was like being on a Zoom call with the camera off, right? Mm-hmm. You could be like standing up, you could be like taking a sip of water, you could you could be doing your own thing. Now, the minute the camera turned on me, I remember it was like 2010 or 2011 when they're like, hey, guys, we got a camera in the studio. And during rehearsal, I would be talking and talking. And every time I would see myself on the camera, I'd fucking just shut up. I'd stop. And they'd be like, yo, keep talking. Keep talking. I was just like staring at myself. <laughs> and they're like, you got to keep fucking talking. <laughs> it was such a crazy transition. But it. I got over it pretty quickly where I'm like, all right, just don't even look at the TV screen. A lot of times I'll just dim it so I can't even see myself Yeah, and then just kind of call what's on the screen. But you you do kind of have to know when you're on camera because sometimes they want you to like address the camera directly. Sometimes they want you to look at this one. So that was a little bit of a transition. But early on, it was it was easy. It was just talking to a TV, like talking to Bridges, watching TV. It was yeah. pretty cool. It, when you first when you first kind of entered that world, like when they called you in and you were you know going in blind, were you were you like seat two or seat were you were you like the color guy or were you calling it as it, as it went in? How did it, how did it, how were the dynamics when you first started? I've always been play by play. I don't I don't think I could host. I don't I don't ever want to be a host because that's the person that's kind of driving the ship, like a Salema Masakella, right? He's the absolute gold standard of of hosting snowboard events. I don't think I'd be very good at that. I'm a little too insider. I'm not quite as polished as, as Salema or Todd Richards, um, or people in that world. Um, and so my role was always kind of like the core insider guy throwing in little tidbits like, Hey, I saw so-and-so at the bar last night or out at dinner and I overheard them saying this. Um, and then a lot of it too, is just calling the tricks and knowing the tricks. And, um, it's actually kind of funny because I was watching the Olympics (laughs) Uh, this year and I was like Jesus Christ thank God I'm not there like I don't even know what the fuck these people are doing it's so hard to call a quadruple cork backside 1800 yeah at a certain point it just gets to be kind of crazy it's crazy and as you've started doing this for more and more events what what does the preparation looked like Aside from the first one where you got a day's notice and just showed up on the job, what what do you put into it ahead of time to make sure that you're dialed? Yeah, it's pretty much I do a lot of that preparation, usually when I'm traveling to that event. So what I'll do is I'll, you know, go online and I'll download the contest the night before and I'll sit on the plane and I'll watch it and I'll pause it and I'll make notes. So then you can always kind of go back and say, oh, so-and-so got fourth place here last year. Can they get a first? Like, however that is, you'll look at other contests they did, uh, like X Games and Do Tours and 
um, you know, the main announcing that I do now is with the natural selection tour. So I'm just constantly rewatching runs, picking out like little things that other people maybe didn't pick up on because I feel like as a, as a play by play announcer, if you can tell the audience something that they never thought of that, then you're doing your job, yeah. right? If you can pick out like a little bit of an intricacy in someone's run or the, the way they said something or the way they sounded before they dropped in and they can go, Oh, that's kind of a cool little insight. That's when I feel like I'm doing a good job. Yeah. Whereas a host, you're making sure you're getting sponsor throws, you're cutting to commercial break. The host is basically throwing me like softballs that I can just like knock right out of the park. You know, they're setting me up with those easy questions, those transitional questions that I can kind of like delve a little deeper into my craft with. Now, now, when you're like, say natural selection, for example, are, are you, this might sound stupid, I, I don't know, but are you getting the same feed as, as what like someone that's watching is getting or are you getting something different? You know, I think there's a little bit of a delay in case anything like anyone drops an F-bomb or something. Right. I think they can, I think there's like a 10 or 15 second delay. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm running the same feed as what everyone's seeing. Nice. Yeah, yeah I, I've always been curious about that, obviously, because you're obviously trying to call it as it's happening and you know the, the the person that's actually watching has no clue on what they're watching for the most part so i was always curious like yeah. like do you get multiple different angles like do you know what's coming before so you can actually call it in real time because it's pretty fast man like things are happening so fast yeah. and, you're, and you're getting those softball pitches but you gotta be you gotta be ready to talk like immediately yeah you gotta call it on the fly during the run now when we do have a little bit of an advantage is like during the replays so we have a producer that's in our ear all the time uh her name is rima and she is the fucking best like she's so unbelievably good at her job and so when it comes to replay time right <clears throat> salema let's go to replay t-bird take us through it rima will be in my ear she's like hey we slowed down the second hit for you and i'm still talking while this is happening and she's talking in my ear so that's kind of a weird yeah. thing right like Super words weird. are coming out and words are going in so you got to just kind of like train your mind to continue on with your thought but also hear a little bit of what they're saying so rima will say like hey we slowed down Sage's frontside 360 on the second hit. And so as I'm going into the second hit, it's like, all right, now let's check this out in slow-mo. Like I know the slow-mo is coming before the audience knows the slow-mo is yeah. coming. And that is, that's probably the hardest part about announcing is those times when, you know, usually when I'm talking, she'll be talking to Salema or she'll be talking to Mary or Bridges. So I don't hear that. But if she really needs to tell me something and I'm mid-sentence, like if I'm just droning on and I got to shut the fuck up. She'll be like, T-Bird, stop now. <laughs> and I know that's kind of like a four or five second, like, and back to you, Salema. And yeah. I'll just call it. Oh, dude, that's yeah. really cool. Dude, I feel like... Yeah, it's pretty wild. I feel like for a contest like Natural Selection, the format of it, which is sick, and it seems like that's probably going to trickle into some more, more stuff, hopefully, in the future. But I feel like your role of calling that, it being a little bit more subjective about each run and the tricks that are being put down, your your role is is even more critical to like like your little tidbits of information on whatever feature if if someone just does a a backside 180 off of some feature that's crazy and makes it harder than whatever another rider through through a bigger spin off something that maybe wasn't as difficult like the things you're saying have more an impact yeah and again that's just going back to like giving the riding it's due to the audience like informing the audience of just how 
crazy what the writers are doing is because it is hard to see sometimes a lot of stuff gets lost on once you involve a screen right it, it makes it look smaller it makes the snow look a little shittier but if you were to see this in real life it would be the craziest shit you've ever seen and so i always try to keep that in the back of my head like i really my number one goal in announcing the natural selection tour because i love these riders so much like they're my family they're my friends is i always want to give them their due i always want people to know how fucking rad they are and how incredibly talented they are and so that's why i'm always trying to pick out little things right to like inform the audience whether it be like this is what you know anna gasser is like when she's not snowboarding she's like this sweet bubbly awesome smiley human being this is what sage kotzenberg is like when he's strapped in he's a fucking silverback gorilla like this dude is like right. the craziest motherfucker you'll ever meet when he's on his snowboard it's always trying to like just give the riders their due because i it's the least we can do it's what we owe it right and it's, and it's so it's like such a good point because i mean when you see it live you know when you're there and you're watching them do this you're watching the what they're actually snowboarding over like you look at this terrain and what they're doing on the terrain it's so incredible like it's insane. And a lot of times, you know, if you're not really familiar with the things that they're jumping off of or the tricks that they're doing on TV, it, they make it look so easy. That it doesn't look as crazy, you know, but when you see it, right. when you feel it first person you, and you, you see what they're about to go off of, they're like, there's no way that guy's going off. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then they do. And then it's wild. It's wild. I don't know if you remember last year, Arthur Longo, that French rider. Uh, just kind of like mid run. I think the line I had said, I said is he manifests landings and manufactures speed. And literally as soon as I said that he did me a huge favor because he just went from zero to 60 and sent it off the side of a takeoff to, to this like panel of powder that was, it wasn't even a landing. It was just like a wind lip. And I'm, I'm telling you, it was like 120 feet from end to end. And he just did it out of nowhere. And that kind of like sparked in my head. I'm like, all right, you have to get across to these people how crazy that is. Cause yeah. that to me, it was like the trick of the event, even though he didn't land, he kind of like backseated it and wheelied out of it and then stood up and he had lost a lot of speed. But like Salema jumped out of his chair. Like we were going ballistic in the booth when he <laughs> did that. And it's okay to let the audience hear that and feel that yeah. sometimes, yeah. you know, you look at, <clears throat> you look at like a, like a, um, Mexican soccer announcer when when they score they go fucking it's bad the best. shit it's like the that best. stuff that's cool it's really really cool to feel that energy it's, the, you know? it's, it's awesome I, I unless it's like a team that I'm like I, I'm rooting for it, I watch a lot of soccer I watch a lot of European football so if, it, if it's two teams that I don't really care about but I want to watch because I'm a sports fan I'll always watch Telemundo always and because i just 10 times out of 10 oh, it's unbelievable it's like you just want to yeah. hear it you want the guys so excited when they score he says goal for like literally <laughs> probably 120 seconds and you're just like i got you know my tv like sonos is like all it's like on a hundred you know it's like no it's so it like rattles my house it rattles my house my it's wife's the like, best like the baby's taking a nap i'm like dude they just scored a fucking free kick and it's a goal it's a goal it, 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 it's it's so good like the excitement is is is, is on is undeniable so i appreciate that you yeah, appreciate it's, that it's awesome yeah it's it's cool to, i don't go that nuts you know it's just like not really in my general demeanor um, but it is cool to to kind of like let that energy be felt when when really incredible things are happening. And uh, yeah, I remember the, the best advice I ever got was from Preston Strout, who is one of my buddies from Plymouth State University. 
Uh, he owns Crab Grab. I think he's probably on the Mount Rushmore of snowboard announcers. He's up there with Salema and Todd. Um, he told me before one show we did together, it was like a really big US Open and there was just a lot of pressure and we had gotten the numbers from the night before and there were a lot of people watching. I was kind of stressing. I usually don't stress, but I was, I was pretty nervous. Preston just looks at me and he's like, listen, people are gonna remember the first thing you say and the last thing you say. Everything else in between in that three hour show it's okay if you fuck up. It's yeah. okay if you don't say things perfectly. Just kill it in the beginning and sign off strong. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he's right. That's kind of it. Because <laughs> that's when the majority of people are watching. Like, you're going to lose a lot of viewership in between, uh, in the middle of a four-hour broadcast. But right. people are tuning in for, for the intro and the outro. And I was like, that's pretty pretty sound advice. Well, yeah, and... It's not that they're not watching the middle. It's just a lot of times while they're watching the middle, they're not maybe not necessarily listening as intently as they would be at the beginning or the totally. end. You know, so it's like they're, right. they're they're still engaged to a certain degree watching whatever's on the TV or whatever's on the screen, but they're not like hanging on every single word when you're calling something out. But to his point, he is right. You know, to the start and the end, like that's when you know we all turn the volume up to hear how it starts and hear how it ends. But that, that's really sound advice. Yeah, it's going. good advice. I give it to a lot of people who are getting into announcing or if someone's like, yo, I got to do this thing and I'm super worried about it. Even like a public speaking thing in class. I'm like, yeah. just kill it in the beginning, sign off strong and you're going to do just fine. I'm, I'm keeping, I'm, I'm going to reuse that. I like it. I feel like, yeah. I feel like you get like yeah, a, a master class in all of your mentorships here between photography and announcing. You're yeah. just surrounded by like the best of the best at all times. I mean, yeah. It, it, as far as snowboarding is concerned, it was like on the writing side, it was Ben Fee and Pat Bridges. On the photo side, it was the whole snowboarder photo staff. And on the announcing side, it was you know Preston Strout and Craig McMorris and Jack Matroni and Salema Masakella, Mary Walsh. It's been pretty crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I feel really lucky so we have you on here because we really want to talk about you know rides 30 year story um and neil was actually out in in see he was lucky enough to go to the premiere um what was that last month whatever it was yeah a few weeks ago a few weeks ago something like that or november 2nd so this month yeah i, I was like thinking it was like the end of i think it was december but it's not still november um so that particular movie and neil was really jazzed up on it when he when he came back he's like dude it was really really sick um, uh, t did a, did a, you know, a great job. Tanner was in it. He did a great job. So I guess to start the, this conversation is like, was this your particular project start to finish? Were you just a big contributor or how did this all go down? Oh, this could be, this could be its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it all started, uh, with Tanner McCarty and Jim Lindbergh at Ride Snowboards, um, who employ me as their staff photographer every yep. winter. They were like, hey, our 30-year anniversary is coming up in a couple of years. You think you could do a book? I was like, yeah, I think I could handle a book. And then all of a sudden, we're talking documentary. And so we pulled in John Cavan. And John Cavan is another, he's from Worcester, Mass. He's an OG nice. East Coaster. Nice. Biggest Red Sox fan you'll ever meet in your life. Never seen him not wearing a Boston Red Sox baseball like hat. Um, and he made all the grenade videos, Iron Curtain videos back in the day. I worked with him in Snowboarder for six, seven years. And so we just kind of hit the ground running, you know, um, telling 30 years of a snowboard brand in an hour and 20 minutes is a relatively impossible task. Yeah. And we kind of knew that from the jump. Yeah, because I, mean, I was going to ask uh, but, you about that because it's obviously 30 years is insane. I was And I was thinking, you know, when I, when I was thinking about this topic to bring up to you, it's like, 
Did you guys, did you guys, you know, have a story to tell about the ride brand or did like the brand story kind of just start to unfold kind of naturally during the process? Because obviously that's so much history that you got to pack into a watchable movie. Yeah. I mean, I would say the latter for sure. It was, it was the second part of your question. Um, we knew probably more than most about the brand, you know, founded in 92 by these, uh, these people, Tim and Steph Pogue, and then they brought it public in 96 and the stock skyrocketed and then it crashed and then they signed Brushy and then K2 bought them. But it wasn't until we started flying and driving around and actually sitting down with the people that lived it that we realized what the true story was. And what I think the true story of the ride brand is, is that it is a brand that had a luminary Tim Pogue, the guy who started it, he, if he was still with the brand, he'd be Jake Burton right now. He'd be Tom Sims. He'd be Richard Wolcott. He'd be Pete Sari. But he was only there for four years before mm. the corporate side, unfortunately, pushed him out. Um, you know, once you involve investors and public money, it's, a, it's not your brand anymore. It right. becomes its own beast. Um, and they were the first snowboard brand, unfortunately, that had to learn that the hard way. So after Tim left, the whole thing at any point could have gone out of business. There are a million reasons why ride snowboards should be out of business today. But the reason it's still alive is because after Tim and Steph Pogue uh, left the brand, it was kept alive by the people who were remaining. Right. And there's a quote in a movie in the movie from uh, Mike Stiskel, uh, Stick, who was the old creative director of ride, longtime creative director of ride. He said it was like a whitewater rafting canoe trip right where it's like oh water's calm everyone's on the boat and then all of a sudden it hits some crazy rapids and you go over the falls and you lose a few people but you gotta just keep on paddling and then there's some rapids then there's some rapids that are so gnarly you got to get the boat out of the water and you got to walk it around and maybe a couple people get lost along the way and you put it back in the water and it's there have always been there's always been this this nucleus of really, really passionate people for the brand that have kept it alive. And that's that's the only reason it's not out of business today. And that's what I thought was the coolest part. And we didn't know that going into it. We had no idea that, that was going to be the case. Yeah. And you had to get together, you know, a collection of humans that had, that kind of lived this. Was it was it difficult getting all these people kind of involved in the, in this project and like did everyone do you have to fly around and do all these individual these interviews where like all they are where everyone lives now how did that whole thing work i think in the end uh, we we thought we were going to interview 20 to 30 people still that's a lot <laughs> um, but that's a lot we ended up doing i think closer to 70 interviews wow. for this thing that is um, a ton. it was kind of but the the reason that the reason that happened is because every time you would talk to someone, they'd be like, oh, you got to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. Yeah. So you'd put them on the list and then, you know, you DM them or you try to email them or you try to text them and they're like, oh yeah, I'm here. And okay, cool. We'll be out in two weeks. And then you go out there and you learn a little bit more about the brand. It was like slowly going down the biggest rabbit hole you could ever imagine, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's, when I say you can't tell the story in an hour, it's true, you can't emerge from that rabbit hole. But what you could do is take the information, everything you've gathered, and tell the best story you can with it, Yeah. you know? Well, essentially you've become the archivist for Ride, which is just an immense responsibility to tell this story. Yeah. And how, many, yeah, yeah. how long I mean, did you have to, to gather all this information? 
Because, I mean, my mom's have a, had a portrait of my brother on her wall that you took probably two or three years ago for this. Yeah. So I knew it was coming, but still doesn't yeah, seem like was, enough time. It was, well, it, again, it was actually pretty funny because we signed off on the project in December. I want to say December of 2019. Um but then, of course, what happens in March of 2020? Right. We had all these interviews lined up. We had plane tickets booked. We had the studio. We were going to fly around with it. We had all the sound equipment. And basically, <clears throat> Kevin was going to drive, and I was just going to fly, you know, in and out. Because um, Kevin's got to bring the full studio with him. Um, and COVID hits. And so we're like, shit, what do we do now? And so we figured instead of just sitting back, because we had already told everyone that we were going to be doing this, instead of sitting back and... Being like, ah, let's just, once it opens back up, we'll start flying around. Instead of flying to them and interviewing them, we started doing what we called research interviews. And that was, COVID was kind of the best thing that could ever happen to the project in a weird way. Um, because it actually forced us to learn about the brand before we hit the road. Thinking about interviewing these people and not knowing what we learned through the, through the research interviews is like, it, it like gives me goosebumps. I would have been so embarrassed because I didn't really know anything about the brand. And so we conducted probably 20 to 30 interviews with key figures from all three eras. And when we emerged from that session after maybe two or three months of these Zoom interviews, me and Kevin were like, oh my God, we know the story now. Like, I can't believe we didn't know this happened. I can't believe we didn't know this person worked there. I never knew that. Yeah. And so we, it kind of changed our whole game plan. And so once it was safe to um, start flying around and interviewing people, we just approached it like completely differently. Like we knew so much more about the brand. And we, we used a lot of that time digging through the archive. Yeah, we had rides. I had rides personal archive in this closet for two years and I was not cool with it. I was not comfortable <laughs> having that in well, my house. Well, I mean, you, you just, you guys must have been armed with so much more information and like you going into these interviews with, with these people, you're now saying things to them, which they probably didn't think that you knew. And so they must've felt like so much more like engaging, like, Oh, they, like, Oh, they already know that. Like, Oh yeah, I can elaborate on said thing. So like, it was more, probably more of a conversation at that point versus was, you know, asking a question and jotting down what they're trying to say. Yeah, it, it, it did help us kind of like gain a little credibility with them because some of the people were just like, yeah, I don't know if I want to talk to you. And we're like, OK, like all good. If you don't want to talk to us, you don't have to. Um, but just so you know, this is kind of where we're going with it. And as you start telling them what you know, they're like, oh, oh, these guys did their yeah, homework. They're yeah. not like some net. They're not some like Netflix dudes that are just trying to like make a buck. You know, yeah, um, we were we were passionately like very, very invested in this thing from the jump. And once once people realize that we had kind of the golden key to like get it done. But it, it was it's funny you mentioned that because there were times where, you know, you're talking to people th that haven't thought about this stuff in like two decades. And so they're like, what was the name of that guy? Hmm. And me and Kevin would be like, Dave Hubach, yeah. and they're like, holy shit, how yeah. did you know that? Sick. And you can see their whole like demeanor change. They're like, how do you know who that person is? It's yeah. like, oh, we talked to Julie Dunleavy, and she told us, and they're like, Julie Dunleavy, how, how's she doing? Is she doing good? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. So so it, it definitely worked out, but in the end, you know, maybe I'm my, my own biggest critic. Like, there are so many things we would have done differently in retrospect, but I, what can't you say that for, yeah. right? Yeah. <clears throat> there are things that we wish we knew and we wish we had kind of done. But in the end, we, I'm proud of what we did. You know, the book and the documentary are, are 
pretty outstanding pieces by themselves. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, that's really cool. Neil's the only one that actually got to see this. Despite my best efforts, I could not get a link to this movie. So when can we see it? When is it out to the public? Like, how do we how do we get the book? Like, so stay tuned. We're, we just got the book back from the printer. So basically, what what we did was <clears throat> we premiered it on November second, um, and then we still had a couple things we had to tweak and tune and adjust audio levels. But we knew that we'd have like three weeks to do it. Um, and that process just got finished. So the movie is officially done and it's going to be on Ride's YouTube very soon. And all I can tell you, because this is part of the marketing of it, is just keep your eyes posted to Ride's social channels. Um, and they're, they're going to make some announcements really soon. And they'll tell you how to get the book, where to watch the movie, all that stuff. Sick. Neil, Neil says that your, your brother's a big, big star in it. Uh, I, it was news to me. A lot I mean, of screen time. That's great. <laughs> he, he didn't do a very a good job. A lot of screen uh, time explaining it and then neil came back and was like yeah uh a lot of interviews in there Tanner. no it was great i think the story came through oh, yeah. really well it was it was done in a really cool format like kind of getting the the behind the scenes look at the ups and downs of of the brand it's not really a story that gets yeah. told that that often so it was cool it's done really well yeah yeah, it was pretty cool. It was good. We did lean on Tanner quite a bit. He's you put a couple Modellos in T Mac, and he's good on camera. <laughs> yeah. He's good. He knows That's what he's know. doing. He's a smooth. He's a smooth operator. Yeah. That could be its own podcast. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna be. Um, so did, who who combed through all these interviews once they were done? I mean, it's one thing to do it, right? Obviously, you can go and record wherever you want to record and and say, hey, thanks. That was great for your. You know, appreciate the time and walk away. But you got to rewatch seventy interviews and then actually go through and pull out the tidbits of information that make you know that particular interview relevant for the story you're trying to tell was that all you uh so for the documentary it was john cabin and for the book all of those audio files of all 70 interviews that we did or however many interviews we did i had to get those transcribed and then those came back to me i think the in a, in like word document page numbers i think the smallest interview that came back it was probably 40 pages and the longest was like 120 it's so much dialogue that's crazy yeah it's pretty wild and so it was just me in this room just day after day after day just chopping away at this thing chopping away at this thing and so in the book i think there's about three hundred and fifty thousand words it's very very interview heavy and there's a lot of information in there which is really cool because the documentary is only an hour long. You can't tell that story, but coupled with the book, it tells a much larger portion of the story of Ride. Um, but I think I started, I mean, just doing like rough math in my head, there was probably the bulk audio to word uh, transcription number that came back was probably close to like 4 million words I was wow. I started wow. working with. Uh, and that eventually had to be cut down over the course of about a year to, to about 300,000. Yeah. And we did it. Yeah. Wow. Damn. Big undertaking. Yeah. Damn. Pretty, yeah. It was, it was, it was heavy. It was very, very, I mean, there were just days and days and days, weeks on end where Ka I knew Kevin was doing his thing. We didn't talk. I was doing my thing. If I got stuck somewhere, uh, I would just call Kevin and I would go on mental health walks. Yeah. That's a real thing. I would just just put in headphones, listen to a podcast, and just aimlessly walk my neighborhood for hours at a time, just to like get away from the computer. 
I got a bunch of buddies that live in the neighborhood and they're like, dude, I see you walking every day. I'm like, oh yeah, yes you do. Like, Are you okay? You don't know what's going through my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just me and Kevin kind of just banging away on this thing until it was done. Did Now did, did Big Jim, I mean, because he was, you know, part of this obviously, right? And did anyone ask you for like, Hey, can we get like a progress report? Can you send us something? Can we get a little flavor, get a little taste? Or, or, or you just have complete creative control to like finish the project? That was the one thing I will always be grateful and love Jim for is he just completely stayed out of our hair. He never asked how, like for updates, he would call and see how we were doing. How are you doing mentally? Yeah. Like, how are you? I don't want to talk about the book. How are you holding up? Um, he's just the best. He's the fucking best. Uh, toward the end, of course, you know, the last two months, he was like, all right, boys, now's the time. And that's when we were ready to start. You know, we start sending him some interview spreads and some clips from the movie. And he was like, oh, this is awesome. But for the most part, he completely stayed out of our hair. Um, and there are two people I completely forgot to mention. I don't know how this happened. Uh, Joel Brinson and Eric Van Hauer. They have this agency called Knocked Bureau. And Joel and Eric did, you know, all of Travis Rice's books. They, Joel does all the union binding stuff. He's a, they were both unbelievable designers and they were the design team. Joel's based in Portland. So he was a really good resource for me to kind of like bounce ideas off of, or if I was stuck somewhere, I'd be like, yo, tell me I'm crazy. Can I just let this go? And he'd read through it and be like, yeah, let that go. That can go to the side. We don't have room for that. Um, so Joel and Eric were, were unbelievable in the process too. And Joel has an office in North Portland. Um, so a lot of days when I was just sick of working here in, you know, our guest bedroom, I would just rip up to Joel's office and we would just hammer on book stuff for, you know, a couple hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, just I, I guess I didn't even th get on the same page. I guess I didn't even think of that. I mean, but, but you kind of get lost in your own, in your own thoughts and like what you're actually reading and writing because you're like, oh, this is like, you know, I, I really like this. We can't cut it out. Or like, maybe we should cut this out. So, so to get someone else, you know, their opinion to look at it, like, no, we can definitely cut this out. You're like, oh, fuck. okay, all right, let's cut it out. Because I can see you just getting lost, like, because you're doing it, you're so deep in. And you're like, no, I, I think this, yeah. this this really helps with what we're trying to do here. And someone else, fresh at eyes is like, no, dude, like, just, just delete it. Set it to the side. Fully. And that was, <clears throat> that was 100% Kevin and Joel. You know, like back in the snowboarder days, Bridges was always my guy, right? I'm like, yo, is this? is this good? And I'd email it over to him and he'd be like, yes or no, you know, yeah. it's good. Move on or not nah, rework this. I, I didn't really have that outside of Kevin and, and Joel. I was just like a man on a mission, like just trying to get these words cut down. And it's a bummer because there's a lot of really good stuff we cut out, but that doesn't mean it's never going to be seen. Like yeah. we have so much unbelievable content that could be released at a later date. These smaller, quicker stories, um, that could come out in the future that we're, that we're sitting on. I mean like hundreds of hours. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, you, you already did the work. It's already all done. You just, now, now you can just kind of <laughs> organize it as such and kind of release it as you go. But I'm stoked to see what it. What does Grenier say? What does Grenier say? The, all the studying's been done. Time to hand in the paper. <laughs> I mean, that's what I told Kevin like the day of the premiere. I'm like, homework's done, dude. We just got to hand in the just paper. Hand it in. Like before the, before the thing went live. <laughs> just hand it in, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm taking a lot from this this episode. I'm still yeah. I'm stealing a lot of this stuff. A lot of words of yeah, wisdom. Yeah, a lot of words of wisdom. This is good. <laughs> yeah, this is good. How are you guys feeling? They're all stolen. Smart. I stole them all. Good. <laughs> well, twice good. stolen. Yeah, twice stolen. We'll keep it going. All right. Well, yeah. T Bird, really appreciate you doing this, man. This has been awesome. 
Um, I'm stoked to see this this new movie. Neil sings sings its praises, and you know, I'm also excited to see Devin's brother on, on the on the silver screen make his debut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, thank you for having me. And I mean, now that I got all of your emails, once that link comes through, I'll just oh, fire do. it to you. You'll get you'll get early eyes on it. Nice. Awesome. That'd be sick. And dude, I, I'm not sure like what how often you, you make it back here, but if you do come back at any point, let let us know or let Dev know. And um just come we'll come through Ski Monster and we'll do we'll do another we'll do another sit down and you can we'll give you the tour here. It's good it's a good time. That sounds incredible. I would love that. You you all are a, a pleasure to talk to. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate Thank you very much. It. Peace, y'all. All right.